Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Hebrews 1, 2 through 4. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And this is the word of the Lord. I feel like on that intro, I should have grabbed a mic and started freestyling. I just kind of had a hankering to do that, but I will uh, spare you that. Let's pray. Father, what we know not, would you please teach us? What we have not, would you please give us? And what we are not, would you please make us? For the sake of your Son, for his glory, in his name. Amen. Amen. When we look at the book of Hebrews as a whole, and I hope that you have been reading it as a whole, we've been encouraging you to go through and read the whole book several times throughout this series, you will see this final and definitive kind of theme throughout the book. You see in the Old Testament, that God spoke in many ways. But in these days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Final, definitive explanation point. Many sacrifices offered for the forgiveness of sins. Now, one sacrifice once and for all through the great high priest. And we see one king, supreme, ruling over all, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The author of Hebrews wants us to see this definitive, final theme. He wants us to see the supremacy of God's Son. And what we're going to look at in these first four verses here is the supremacy of God's Son, the final prophet, the perfect priest, and the mighty king, the final prophet, the perfect priest, and the mighty king. First, the final prophet. Long ago, and at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, by his son. In our house, we have a basement, a middle floor, and an upstairs. And it always seems in our house we are yelling to each other from the top floor to the bottom floor all the time. And literally, I will go to the top of the stairs and I'll say, Judah, you know, try because the neighbors can hear. Would you come up here, please? And they'll say, what? From the basement. Judah, will you come up here? And the last, you just have to take a giant breath and, Judah, will you come up here? And the window is open right next to the neighbors looking through, seeing you know, Pastor Def screaming down to his child. The other day we were doing this. Uh, Brent and I were upstairs. The boys were downstairs. They couldn't quite hear us. There was this kind of figuring out what mom and dad wanted, and they're coming up the stairs and trying to figure it out. And Brent said, I'm going to go down and incarnate myself to my children. I'm going to take the word that I've been yelling, and I'm going to go down in person, and I'm going to look them in the eye and tell them 
what I want from them. This is what God has done through his son. He spoke to us in many different ways. In the Old Testament, God's word came through many different ways. We see visions and dreams and riddles and clear disclosure granted to the patriarchs and to Moses and the prophets who followed. We see many ways of God speaking contrasted here in this text with this one final and definitive word. The word that God has spoken to is his son, Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, Revelation came over a millennium or more. In the New Testament, it came in this one installment, complete in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. He came and put on flesh and dwelt among us. In Exodus 33, to help us understand the significance of what this means... In Exodus 33, we see this conversation that Moses, one who was granted face-to-face encounters or mouth-to-mouth encounters with God, talked with God as he was a friend, this conversation happening between Moses and God. And Moses desires to see God's glory, but God tells him graciously that he cannot look upon his glory because if he were to look upon his glory, it would kill him. It would destroy him. Verse 18 picks up the story here. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim to before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and slow to mercy, and show mercy on whom I will have mercy. He said, but you cannot look upon my face. Man shall not see my face and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place here before me, Stand in the rock while my glory passes by, and I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you there with my hand and pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. Moses wants to see God's glory, but he cannot because God's glory would consume him. Because mankind is sinful and cannot look upon a holy God and live. People in the Old Testament understood this. God's presence coming to his people, coming down into the tabernacle and filling it was a terrifying thing. There needed to be an intercessor between them and God. They needed things to be just right because when God's glory showed up, it was a scary thing. And it meant some people might die in the presence of a holy God. It gives... um, Kind of uh, some, it gives a lot more significance to the presence of God than when we hear people praying, Holy Spirit, we just invite you into this place. We invite you here. Like he, he goes where he wants. He shows up where he will, and it's a scary thing. God's presence does not always feel warm and fuzzy. Sometimes it is very terrifying. We cannot look upon God and his glory because of our sin, and this is mankind's great problem. We cannot live without God because we were created to be with him, and we cannot live with him because his glory will consume our sin. And this is the problem here in the exchange with God and Moses. God says, okay, I will, I will proclaim to you. Instead of looking upon my glory, I will proclaim to you my name. And this may seem much less exciting than being able to look upon the God of the universe, but in ancient cultures, names had much more significance than they do now. In a name, you could understand a person's story. You could understand lots about them. 
you read the Old Testament and see the names that they gave to different people, you will see that this was very uh, much part of the custom. In someone's name, you could understand them. So in Exodus 34, 5 through 8, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions of sin, but will in no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped, and I think we would as well, and we should now in the presence of such a holy God. God, the Hebrew author says, now has spoken to us, proclaimed his name through his son. Moses asked to see God's glory, and God declared to him his name. If you turn over to John 1.14, you get both. It says, and the word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his what? seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh, literally means came and pitched his tents among us the way the tabernacle was. He dwelled amongst his people. And God has spoken to us through his son. Everything that God has to say to us, he has said to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I want you to make sure you understand that. Everything that God has to say to us about who he is, what he requires of us, and how to walk in faith and repentance, he has spoken to us, proclaimed to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He wants to be crystal clear as well that Jesus is not lesser than or a created being. He wants to be crystal clear that when God has spoken to us, it is through his son, the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the second member of the Godhead, who was and is and is to come, Revelation 4, 8. And he makes this clear by what he says in the following verses. If you look at verses 2 and 3, we see Christ's cosmic supremacy. Christ's cosmic supremacy. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Let's unpack these things quickly. Christ, the inheritor, Christ, the inheritor, whom he appointed the heir of all things. John 3, 35, Jesus, speaking of himself, says the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands all things. We see the son here emphasized as the inheritor, obviously because sons inherit things from their fathers. In particular, in that ancient culture, the firstborn sons would inherit these things. But that is not where the author wants us to stop. Yes, he is going to inherit because he is the firstborn of all creation. He is the son. But we see these things unfold even more in a grand 
way. But in these last days, you have spoken to us by his Son, in whom he appointed the heir of all things. In Psalms 2.8, it's speaking of Jesus. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possessions. Jesus is the heir of all things. He is the Lord's anointed. He is the heir to planet earth, its peoples, the universe, and the world to come. Think about that. Christ is the heir to planet earth, its peoples, the universe, and the world to come. Here's how. He is the heir because he is, first of all, the creator, and second of all, the redeemer. The creator and the redeemer. As creator of the universe, he is the natural heir. Colossians 1.16, all things were created for him. Or, as some translations say, all things were created towards him. He is the thing that they were created for. Everything in the physical universe is for Christ and to Christ. And it will consummate in Christ as heir of a new creation. And in addition to his natural inheriting as creator, he is also the redeemer. And as redeemer, he has also earned a vast inheritance of souls who have been renewed through his atoning work on the cross. And he will inherit these things as creator and redeemer. This means that all the redeemed, and if you're not awake yet and haven't said amen because you haven't taken enough drinks of coffee, this is the time to say amen. Because this means if Christ is the inheritor because he's the creator, and he's the inheritor because he's the redeemer, that all the redeemed are his inheritance. So if you are redeemed, you are Christ's inheritance. And he has claimed you. In John 6, thank you, Greg. In John 6, uh, 37 through 39, again, Jesus speaking, he says, all the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that the Father has given me, but raise him up on the last day. If you are in Christ, you are his inheritance, and nothing will separate you from his love, because he is the creator and the redeemer, and he will inherit all things. He is the heir. In Ephesians 1.18, Paul prays that the church would understand the riches of his, speaking of Christ, glorious inheritance in the saints. One commentator says the apostle is saying, he's praying that the readers would understand how highly they are valued by Christ. Jesus is heir to the heavens and the numerous worlds, but we are his treasures. The redeemed are worth, worth more than the universe, and we have been blessed with all that Christ has. You are his inheritance, and you are also his heirs. You are his heirs, made heirs with Christ. Romans 8, 16-17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are Christ's inheritance, and we also, the scriptures say, inherit all that he inherits. Christ inherits all things, therefore we inherit all that Christ inherits as well. 
Christ is the inheritor. Number two, Christ, the creator. Again, the author of Hebrews is pointing out, this is not some created being. This is not just some prophet and messenger. Let me show you who this is. This is the second member of the Trinity, God the Son, Christ the creator, through whom he also created the world. John 1, 1 1-14, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning... In the, uh, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus Christ is the one who made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. He spoke, and it happened. There's a phrase in the Chronicles of Narnia from the uh, soldiers of Tashban. When their leaders speak, they say, to hear is to obey, meaning when I hear it, I obey it right away. When God the Son spoke in the beginning of time into existence, light, it obeyed. When God spoke into existence these things, it obeyed its creator's voice. The old hymn, I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. The moon shines full at his command and all the stars Obey. First Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is this, one Lord, one Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Romans eleven thirty six, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Colossians 1, 16. For By him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Christ is the inheritor, Christ is the creator. Do you believe that this morning? Some of you aren't sure. Maybe you will be as we continue on. In his best-selling book, A Brief History of Time, Cambridge physicist Stephen Hawking says that our galaxy is an average-sized spiral galaxy that looks to other galaxies like a swirl in a pastry roll, and that it is, though, over 100,000 light-years across, about 600 trillion miles. He says, quote, We know that our galaxy is only one of some hundred thousand million that can be seen using modern telescopes. Each galaxy itself contains some hundred thousand million stars, end quote. It's also commonly held that the average distance between these hundred thousand million galaxies is about three million light years. And on top of that, because of the work of Edwin Hubble, we know that the universe is constantly expanding, And some estimates say that the most distant galaxy is 8 billion light years away and that it is racing away from us at 200 million miles an hour. And all of this Christ created. And not only created, but sustains. But sustains. You ever think about the idea, uh, you ever stand in front of the ocean or stand in front of a large mountain range and realize just how small you are. I don't like that feeling too often because I like to be in control. 
But when I stand before the vastness of the ocean and I can't see the other side, when I stand in front of a large mountain range, I feel very small and insignificant, as I should. The creator of the universe also sustains the universe. He upholds, verse 3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Christ, the creator, Christ the sustainer. Jesus sustains and governs the universe that he created. He holds it in being by the word of his power. I already quoted this, but we'll do it again. Colossians 1.17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he upholds the universe, and he upholds it by the word of his power. The universe is held together and on its course by the will of Jesus Christ. All the actions of men and angels are held by Christ. Without Jesus willing it, all the material world and all the spiritual world would cease to exist. Jesus sustains the natural world and governs all of nature. He says, Jesus speaking in Matthew 10, 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them falls to the ground apart from my father. The smallest bird does not die without God's ordaining it and seeing it. You see through the scriptures that big fish obey the voice of their creator and sustainer and swallow disobedient prophets. We see that the sun stands still when its maker says to, and that lions shut their hungry mouths, and that fire does not consume when its Lord commands. My boys really like the story of the disciples on the sea in Luke 8, 25. And at the end of that story, when Jesus calms the sea, when he speaks and it obeys instantly, what do the disciples say? Who is this then? That he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. The answer is, Jesus is God. He is not some prophet who came to just speak of a religion. He is not just some nice teacher who went about doing good, that now we can just live by some of his works. He is God. And I cannot stress this enough, because this is what the author of Hebrews is starting out his whole letter with. That we must get the importance and significance of this. The Son of the living God is the one who God has spoken to us through. This also means, if Jesus is the creator and sustainer, that Jesus has the authority over all governance of all the affairs of history. Jesus has the authority over the governance of all the affairs of history. This means that nothing happens in history without his okay, which is a comforting thought. In Revelation 17, it tells us, that no one will be able to take this power from him. He is the one who controls it. Monarchs and presidents and chiefs and sheiks and prime ministers and dictators and governors and mayors and senators and congressmen and city council all are elected into office by us. Yes, but none of them take that office ultimately without the king of kings and the lord of lords putting them there. The scripture says that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. I could say a lot more about this, 
what I will say is this, that we should be, as the people of God, very involved in the affairs of our country. We should be very involved politically, but we should also know that those things are not going to bring ultimately about salvation or the kingdom of God. And we do our job and we vote in accordance with the scriptures. Be careful about saying voting according to conscience. We should vote in accordance with the scriptures. And trust that the sovereign king who rules all things, who is the creator and sustainer, is the one who puts people into office. Whether we like him or not. And he has a perfect plan in that design. And know this. Everything that comes against the church and its mission will fail. Everything that comes against the church of Jesus Christ and his mission will fail. So we can do our duty, we can vote in accordance with the scriptures, and we can truly rest as King Tyrion rested before the battle the next morning like a baby because he knew that the great lion would fight for them. We can rest knowing that Jesus is the creator and sustainer. Jesus is also the radiator. The radiator, not like the ones you see around here. He radiates the glory of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The word radiance here is a good translation versus some other translations that say reflection. Uh, The difference is really significant. Let me give you um, an example. So the function of the sun and the moon in our solar system is helpful here, all right? So the moon reflects light, but the sun radiates light because it is its source. In the same way, Jesus does not just reflect God's glory, he is a part of God's glory. You see this all throughout the scriptures, in particular places like the Mount of Transfiguration, where his clothes became white as snow, and they could barely look upon him, because Jesus is not just like God, but he is God. He radiates the same glory of God and his own glory as well. This is the same glory that knocked Paul off of his horse and blinded him and called him into his service. The same glory that Moses had to be hidden from because it was so powerful. Jesus is the radiator of God. Jesus Christ is the representer, the exact imprint of his, meaning God's nature. Colossians 1, 5-12, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The phrase here, exact imprint, gives the idea of an image on a coin that perfectly matches the dye that it was cast from. They're both different, but they match. Jesus is completely the same in his being as the Father. But there is an important distinction that they are both existing separately as well, just like the dye and the image. So here's the beauty of this. Jesus is all God. When you see Jesus, you see the Father. Has God ever felt abstract to you? Has God ever felt distant to you? Look to the Son, because by that, C.S. Lewis says, you see everything else. Jesus In seeing him, you see the Father. But also at the same time, he is a distinct person. And this is wrapped up in the the mystery of the Holy Trinity, 
which is a completely other sermon. Augustine said, if you, try, if you deny the Trinity, you will uh, lose your soul. If you try to explain the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. So we'll keep that for another time. The importance here is this. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. This is, you know, the Pharisee said, show us a sign. And God incarnate stands before them. And it was not good enough. And sometimes it's not good enough for us. I love the way that Philip's paraphrase um, translation um, paraphrases, because that's what it's supposed to do, uh, this section. Let me read it to you, and then we'll move on to Jesus as priest. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, this idea of Jesus, the incarnate word. Now Christ is the visible expression of the invisible God. He existed before creation began, for it was through him that everything was made, whether spiritual or material, seen or unseen, through him and for him also were created power and dominion, ownership and authority. In fact, every single thing that was created was created through him and for him. He is both the first principle and the upholding principle of the whole scheme of creation. And now he is the head of the body, which is composed of all Christian people. Listen to this. Life from nothing began through him, and life from the dead began through him. And he is therefore justly called Lord over all. Jesus is the perfect priest, which we will jump into now. But I want to make sure that you understand before we jump into that, that God has definitively, finally spoken to us through his Son. He is the last prophet. He is the one that everything was leading to. He came and preached to us the good news of the gospel, that we are lost and undone without God because we are lost in our trespasses and our sins, and that salvation is only found through his perfect work on our behalf on the cross. Jesus is the final prophet, and he is also the perfect priest. After making purifications for sin, three through four, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much more superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Christ's priestly supremacy. But Christ's cosmic supremacy. The author wants you to know that he is the creator and therefore you should listen to him because he is God and God is saying something very specific to us through his son. Jesus is also the great perfect priest. The perfect priest, his priestly supremacy. In the Old Testament, there are many, many, many priests in the order of Levi and Aaron because death prevented them from continuing in their priestly office. They died. In Hebrews 7, it's really hard not to preach all of Hebrews. When I, when I came back to preach my first sermon after sabbatical, I asked Matt, I was like, got any advice? He said, just don't preach the whole book. It's really hard not to preach the whole thing because it all so beautifully comes together. And the author's just saying kind of the same thing over and over again. So we'll, dump, we'll jump into it a little bit. I'll give you some teasers for the future. Hebrews 7, 23 through 24, speaking this idea of Jesus holding his priesthood permanently. And all the priests before um, falling away and needing to be replaced. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in their office. But speaking of Jesus, but he holds his priesthood permanently 
because he continues forever. Do you see the connection between what he was just saying? He's God, the creator and sustainer, so he's never going to die. And that's the only thing that makes him the perfect priest. Because the other priests, as holy as they were, as they did all the rites and sacrifices that God required, they kept dying and kept having to be replaced. But because he is God... He can hold his priesthood permanently because he continues forever, once and for all, permanently, does not need anyone to come after him because he is the great high priest. He is the substitute for our sins and the purifier. The old song, Rock of Ages, has this, has this, um, this line in it which was the defining line of the author who wrote it, Augustus Toplady, who lived to be 27 years old in the 1700s, and he wrote Rock of Ages, save from wrath and make me pure. Be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Jesus is our substitute because there is, um, the sin leads to death and someone needs to pay. So he's our substitute because we cannot pay and he also then imputes his righteousness to us, the purifier. We see thousands and thousands of animal sacrifices offered in the tabernacle year after year by the priests who were continually to offer up sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. Vern and I are reading through uh, the Old Testament right now, and we're in Leviticus. And we were joking last night about how that we keep hearing about the long lobe of the liver. This, this, they keep talking about the entrails of the animals, and there's just long lobe of the liver. It seems to show up in every single passage. And there is such Detail. Go read Leviticus's, Leviticus chapter 1 to 9, and you will see all the tiny details painstakingly spelling out every kind of sacrifice and exactly what to do with those sacrifices to atone for sins. There's burnt offerings, grain offerings, fellowship offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, what to do with the entrails, what to do with the fat, the kidneys, the loins, the fatty lobe of the liver, can't get rid of that thing, what kind of wood we should use, what kind of fire, how much to burn, how much to eat, how much to throw away. Each sacrifice must be executed perfectly by the priest who had before himself offered sacrifices for his own purification to consecrate himself. So much detail, so much blood, day after day, year after year, and still it could not cleanse worshippers' consciences. The high priest, the most holy person in all of Israel, would enter into the Holy of Holies with great fear. And this is after going through a rigorous process of making himself ready to go in through his own sacrifices. He wore bells on the bottom of his robe. The, the idea of the rope that they tied around his foot is kind of legend. There's nothing we have to, to, um, to make sure that that's actually real. But we do know that he wore bells upon his feet. And you would hear him moving about doing his work. And the bells never stopped ringing. The great high priest We will see in a moment the contrast. But this priest, the high priest of Israel, never sat down. Why? Because his work was never finished. Continually offering sacrifices, the bells constantly ringing, going into the Holy of Holies and listening. Is he still moving in there? As he moved around in the presence of the most holy God, in the presence of his glory. The bells will be heard continually as he moved. Ever ringing, always working always standing, always moving, never resting, blood never ceasing to flow because sin never ceased to flow and the sacrifice must be offered again and again and again. All that in contrast with Christ, once for all sacrifices that cleanses once for all. 
In Hebrews 7, he has no need like those high priests who offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. When the great high priest offered up himself, God's just and righteous requirement was fulfilled. Jesus Christ enters into the holy of holies boldly and sprinkles his own blood upon the mercy seat. And that great curtain that stood between mankind and God was torn from top to bottom once and for all. Done. Final. You see a theme here? Final prophet. Perfect priest because his sacrifice was final. So that all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he would give the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, meaning the blood of sacrifices, nor of the will of the flesh and things that you could do, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus is the great high priest who offers once and for all the sacrifice for sin. And therefore, because of that, he is the mighty king. He is the mighty king. Read verse 3 just to give us, uh, make sure we're all connecting these things. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, for he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, what does it say? He what? What did he say? Karen said it. He sat down. He sat down. Everybody stand up, please. You're Baptist. You're like, what's happening? Standing at the wrong moment. You can stay seated, Bethany. She had knee surgery. Now sit down. I like how some of you just so definitively sat down. A very Pastor Rusty sit down. Just sit down and get comfortable. After making, for purif- uh, making purifications for sins, he sat down. The king already was ruling over all, but in this act of victory upon the cross, he defeated Satan, sin, and death. And we see him risen and exalted to the place of honor where he rules as King of kings and Lord of lords. Philippians 2, listen to what it says in verse 9. Therefore, because of his sacrifice on the cross, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. In Ephesians 1, starting in verse 20, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Jesus sat down because his work was finished. It was sufficient. Jesus, a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, sat down at the right hand of God the Father, the place of highest honor. He sat down proclaiming that his work was perfect and that his rulership was supreme and is supreme. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, Hebrews 10, 11 says. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time on until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. 
the place of highest honor because he was faithful, unlike you and I, to his Father's will, and proclaiming that his work was perfect. Let's give some application and some teeth to this. So like we're, we're, we're roaming around in some heady stuff, maybe a little bit. How does this actually apply to every day? How does, how does Jesus being the final prophet, the perfect priest, and the mighty king apply to when I have to go to work tomorrow? Or, or when I have to, to work through uh, recovering from a knee surgery? Or dealing with a rebellious kid? Or whatever it might be. Jesus' work was final, it was perfect, and it was effective. Jesus' work was final, it was perfect, and it was effective. Again, the author is starting off this theme of Hebrews, of these big explanation points that end things. The final prophet, the perfect priest who offered sacrifices once for all, and the king who sits enthroned forever and who will never lose his kingship. When you try to justify yourself, as Pastor Matt talked about last week, when you hold in your hand over here, yes, I believe that Jesus is the final prophet who came and preached the good news to us, that we are lost in our sin and only by his righteous work can we be saved. And then he offered for himself that sacrifice and he rose again and he is seated on the right hand of the Father. When we hold that over here, but then also hold over here in this hand some other thing to try to add to that, when we try to justify ourselves, holding in one hand Christ and in the other whatever self-justification means works for you, you truly don't believe that Jesus was enough. It is blaspheme to his name to hold in one hand him as justifier, prophet, priest, and king, and hold in another hand something that makes us feel in that moment like God loves us and has forgiven us. You're declaring to yourself, to your children, to your co-workers that you do not believe that his redemptive work was final, perfect, and effective. From the cross, what did Jesus shout? It is finished. It is finished. He did not say it is partly finished. Now Jeff must do his best to figure out the rest. This is not the idea of you doing your best and God just coming alongside you as a coach. He's the one who ran the whole race while you stayed in bed and slept and then gave you the medal that you did not earn. But he did. He did this act of sitting down at the right hand of the Father to demonstrate to the world and to his redeemed that his work was done forever, paid in full. It needs no more sacrifice for atonement. Spurgeon said that when we live this false doctrine of self-justification, it makes the Lord Jesus Christ precisely a nobody. And I would add, and me and everybody, because I take that justification in my own hands. Romans 3.23, a verse that many of you are familiar with, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God's work is final, 
So let me ask you to take a moment. Perhaps you already did this when Pastor Greg asked you to confess sin. But what this week have you been trying to stack upon the work of Jesus? What are you trying to add to the perfect work of Jesus to make yourself feel as if you are justified? Now, if we consciously think about this, we're like, of course I know that I can't justify myself. Of course I know that. But how often do our lives say something different? I'll give you a list of things here in just a moment. Jesus' work was final. His work was perfect. What are you going to add to the perfect justifying work of Christ, friend? Christ is superior to anything you might turn to to make yourself feel like you're a good person and in good standing before God and have been forgiven fully. You don't have to continue to pay penance. This is what plagued Luther. Luther would confess every single sin he could think of. In fact, his superiors got tired of his confessions. He would confess passing gas. No joke. Because he was so convicted that he did so in chapel. Because he was trying so hard to be justified before a holy God. He would climb the stairs. He would whip his back. And none of it could atone for sins. Until he read that we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Maybe you turn to your perfectionism. And if this, some of this sounds familiar, I just borrowed it from Pastor Matt. So there I quoted him. Maybe you turn to your perfectionism to feel justified. If I can just crush this day or this project. Maybe you turn to your avoidance of stress. If I can just get the stars to align and make everything feel really good today, I'll feel justified. Maybe you turn to your rules. If I can just stay away from this, that, or the other. If I can just stay away from alcohol. Perhaps some of you dip your bread in the juice because you think it makes you feel more justified. Maybe you dip your bread in the wine because you think that you're higher superior than others and are self-justified. Maybe it's the approval of others. A person, if I could just get this person to like me, then I will feel like I am enough. Maybe you turn to your abilities to influence others. If I could just get people to believe that I am the wisest person in the room. You always have to have the last word at home group. Do you turn to your perfect church attendance, your meticulous Bible reading plan, or your impeccable parenting ability? Really what we're doing here is we're just simply saying, I'm a good person because I do X. Instead of trusting in the work of Jesus that was final and perfect and effective. Also, you know that when we, we don't just blaspheme the name of Jesus in doing so. But without the indwelling of the Spirit of God, all your good moral acts are simply your own exaltation and will bear no good lasting fruit whatsoever for the kingdom. Instead, your self-justification brings forth death and, listen, it begets death as well. You remember Jesus' words to the Pharisees when he's giving the woes to the Pharisees? Matthew 23, 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, he says in 23, 15. Hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when, you become, and when they become a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. When I read this, when I was meditating on this this week, it struck me as a parent. When our children see our own false gospel of self-justification, 
it will beget death in them. It will not lead them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will lead them to the gospel of performance and box checking. It brings forth death. I once knew a couple who prided themselves on how much scripture they read to their kids. Every chance they got, they wanted to tell me and others how well they were doing in this area. And they would always point out that when they read the Bible to them, they did not read the kids' versions, but the real thing. Real Bible, not kids' versions. And those parents were not reading the scripture in excessive amounts to their children to saturate them in the word of truth, but instead to fuel their own self-righteousness. It was not justification by grace through faith in Christ alone, but by also the amount of Bible I can read to my kids, even a good thing turned bad by Satan and the flesh, so that I can tell everybody to praise God and me a little bit too. Our self-justification gospel is no good gospel at all, but a damning gospel. We see this in our society right now in efforts for compassion to the least of these. If what is motivating you to show compassion to the least of these is self-justification and a feeling internally that I am a child of God because I do X, Y, and Z, then you are not bringing good news to the poor. You're bringing bad news to the poor because you're using them for your own advantage. We see this in this self-righteous, self-justifying social justice movement that we have taken, that's taken our culture by storm along with the church as well. Man, and never before in my 20 years of ministry and most of that being ministry to the poor and the downtrodden have I seen the poor so exploited, so used by self-righteous social justice warriors who have taken no true care for the poor but only serve them so they can feel self-righteous. We see these things sweeping our culture. What are you holding on to, friend? In one hand, you hold prophet, priest, king, yes. But in the other hand, I have to have this thing. Aren't you tired of that? Does it work? You're like the priest, never resting, never sitting, always moving, always sacrificing, always more, more, more blood. Stop. Listen, stop. Stop. God's final word has spoken. Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient and effective. And instead of self-justifying, we need to embrace the good news of the gospel that we are sinful and completely unable to save ourselves, but Jesus is perfect and completely able to save those who come to him in humility. Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save to the uttermost or completely those who draw near to God through him. Again, the hymn, Rock of Ages, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. And you can say amen to it and go out after service and pick up all your self-justification on the way out. Kids got to be in bed for the right nap time and all those kinds of things, whatever it is. And all those things are great and good unless you take those things as signs of your own self-piety and self-justification and self-righteousness. God's word 
has spoken. Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. It is impossible, Hebrews 10.4, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It is impossible for perfect church attendance to take away sins. It is impossible for your impeccable Bible reading plan to take away sins. These are good things, but they cannot take away sins. It is impossible for your parenting, perfect parenting, to take away sins. It is impossible for you being the most sacrificing spouse to take away sins. It is impossible for other people's approval to take away sins. It is impossible for your approval of yourself to take away sins. It's impossible for good grades in school to take away your sins. It's impossible for being the wisest person in the room to take away sins. It's impossible for caring for the poor to take away sins. It's impossible for having the right political views to take away sins. It's impossible for financial success to take away sins. Some of you treat Dave Ramsey like he's the fourth member of the Trinity or something. It's impossible. It's impossible for physical appearance to take away sins, although some of you should probably live like it could take away sins. But it's impossible for your spiritual heritage to take away sins. It's impossible for being a pastor to take away sins. It's impossible for perfect sermons to take away sins. How often do we offer over and over and over and frustrated and angry because we are not putting faith in the justifying work of the great high priest who sat down because his work was perfect. All of these things cannot justify. Nothing in my hand I bring. What does it say? Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to thy fountain fly. Wash me Savior or I die. Not wash me Savior and whatever makes me feel justified. Wash me Savior. Period. Hear the author of Hebrews saying, Final, definitive, word, final, sacrifice. He sat down, final king. Wash me, Savior, period, or I die. For by a single offering, Hebrews 10, 14, he has perfected, perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Luther said, every week I preach justification by faith to my people because every week they forget it. God's great servant Moses, the meekest man to ever live, the man who talked to God like you talk to a friend, hid his face in the cleft of the rock as the glory of God passed by. You remember what he said to Moses? A God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquities and transgressions of sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. God forgives iniquities and transgressions, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Someone has to pay. And here's the good news. God has taken you, just like he took Moses, and hidden you in the cleft of the rock, which is Christ, and covered you there with his hand. Now, because you are in Christ, you can gaze upon the glory and the majesty of the creator and sustainer of the universe, whose, if it was not for the the blood covering of his son, whose glory would consume you if you bring your meager offerings Look, God, look what a perfect parent I am. 
I got everybody just on time in bed and all these things. Look how sacrificial I am to my spouse. Look at my reading plan and all my notebooks. I have to have a new notebook for every, every uh, study I go into in Scripture. And I got so many notebooks that are not full because I never start them. But I got all the great notebooks. Look what I have, God. No, his glory would consume your sinfulness. But he puts you in Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory full of grace and truth. Moses was spared the wrath he deserved in the presence of God's glory, and so all who are in Christ are spared the wrath because the wrath has fallen upon the perfect priest. Rock of ages, cleft from me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flow be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. As we close, his work was effective. He is the effective king. His rulership is effective and successful at whatever it is set out to do. God planned foreordained before he formed the, south, the foundations of the earth to save you and bring about this plan. And it worked. It worked. And nothing will thwart his plan. Nothing will stop his plan. Satan did not win. The promise made in the garden to crush the serpent's head came to pass. God raised Jesus from the dead and he ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father, taking his rightful place as supreme over all and declaring to the world and especially to the redeemed, my work is finished. So trust in that. And when you're running around offering sacrifices for sin and the bells are jingling on your robe like the high priest, stop and look at the Son and what God has spoken to you through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The king has defeated Satan, sin, and death. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And he has set us free to serve him now. It's really possible. Sin's forgiven. The righteousness of Jesus given to us so that we can go now and walk in faith and repentance. That's what it says when it speaks in Hebrews 9, the, the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of all these things can never make a purification for sins. So how much more will the blood of Christ, even though those things did give some purification for, sin, for sins, how much more will the blood of Christ, through the eternal Spirit offering up himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from the dead for works to serve the living God? Jesus is the final prophet, priest, and king, and his work is effective, and we can rest in that. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, some authority has been given to me. Some of you should run up here and run me out of this pulpit. Did he say some authority has been given to me? What did he say, Tiffany? All. All authority has been given to me. Church, do you believe this? If we believe that all authority has been given to Jesus, then we can live with great boldness for the mission of God's glory. We can practice theological maximalism. Men and women can embrace their God-given roles. Churches can be resolute 
against embracing worldly ideologies and preach the truth. Pastors can preach with boldness and offend the sin that's in the room and build up the congregation into a robust theology and call people to work in faith and repentance to the glory of God. If we truly believe that all authority has been given to our great prophet, priest, and king, then we will see hundreds of people coming to faith in Christ being baptized and being discipled and sent back out on the mission of God. But what we often believe instead that authority has been given to Jesus is we believe the lie of our first parents, Adam and Eve, that was given to them. Did God actually say? Is all authority really been given to him? Is he really sitting down or does he need you to add to the work? Tell the enemy to shut up and gaze at the sun. As we trust our prophet, priest, and king, um, we can do it with absolute certainty. Let me give you an example here. Real, real practical, and then we'll call it a day. So if you're a parent, how many parents do we have in the room? Raise your hand. So if you're a parent, this is how this applies to you. Ren and I were talking about this this week. If you're a parent, Jesus being the word, gives us absolute certainty that we know the truth. We know what God is like, what he has said, and what he has required. We don't have to guess about it. So, we can teach with confidence our children in the truth. In a world that says that you can live your own truth, and that truth is whatever you say it is, we can boldly tell our children, no, we know the truth. Why? Because God has spoken to us through his son and made it plain. We can speak with boldness as we witness to our friends, as we call them to repentance and faith in Christ. If Jesus is the perfect priest, in Revelation 5, 9, it says if the idea is if Jesus is the perfect priest, those who are in Christ are also priests. And they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll, speaking of Jesus, and to open the seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe, tongue, language, and people, and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. If you are in Christ, you are a priest who is offering up spiritual sacrifices of praise to your God. Hebrews 13, 15 through 16, let him then, uh, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to our God. So, mom, mom, in the everyday grind of the duties of the home, you are a priest in the washing of dishes, in the changing of diapers, in the making of meals, in the kissing of, of uh, boo-boos, that's what we call them in our house, in the emptying of puke buckets, pray for the McBees, you are a priest offering up sacrifices of praise to your God. Fathers, you are not just working some mundane nine-to-five job. You are a priest offering up sacrifices of praise to your God. And you understand that the hard work you are doing is a part of building your household and leading your family on mission for the glory of God as you are a priest because you serve the great high priest. And as the great high priest intercedes for us, if you're a parent, when your kiddos go to bed in the next room, they have priests 
interceding for them on their knees that they would come to know their need for Jesus and put their faith and trust in him. The same analogy applies to all of us, whether you have kids or whether you're out of that stage of life. You're not off the hook either. If you are in Christ, you are a priest offering sacrifices of praise. In Hebrews 13, 15, 16, it says, Through him then let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is where the author makes it real, real simple. This means that as you serve your church community, you are offering up sacrifices of praise. In Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So in the showing of hospitality and the caring for one another, even financially, as you find out someone has a need, you are offering up sacrifices of praise to your God as a priest. As you clean the building, as you set up chairs, as you make coffee, as you open doors, as you prepare the elements, as you run the sound and the slides, as you put in HVAC, as you mow the grass, as you hold babies, teach kids, host a home group, invest in DNA doxa, lead music, or preach sermons, you are a priest offering up sacrifices of praise to your God with joy. But that praise is only acceptable as it is offered in the power of the Spirit and for the glory of God's name. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And all this we can do with confidence and joy, knowing that our sovereign king is ruling and reigning over all, and nothing will stop his will from coming to pass. The mighty king is building his church, and the gates of hell will not stop it. And God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray along with Jude The only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.